This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, it's brilliant today. It's medieval today and Merrin's come back to join me. Uh, Merrin, who do we have? Today, Alex, we have Elisa Yule, who is, I think I'm right in saying, a third-year PhD student mm-hmm. at Trinity College in Dublin, and she's working on the cultural memory of Breton monasteries and the perception of Ireland in a Breton context from the 8th to the 11th century. Now, that's quite mixed and complex in its own right. I know that you enjoy studying trans-regional history and holy men and women in particular, too. Mm-hmm. So... It's quite complex, and and it's something that we haven't really explored in detail before. So can you back us up a bit? Um, When we talk about monks and monasticism in general, a lot of us think of people in brown cows, low chance in herb gardens and cloisters, and there's an awful lot of cadfail that comes to mind. But but that's quite a shallow view. So so teach me, educate me, start with some meaty background. What is monasticism? What is it and why does it exist? All right, so you have the right idea there. Um, monasticism, at its simplest, is just a religious way of life that requires you to renounce, you know, the worldly in order to devote yourself completely to God, to be one with God. Um, and it's not exclusive to Christianity or the West at all, you know, but uh, in the Christian context, um, it came from the East, actually. So the word monk comes from monos, which in Greek means like being alone, to be alone. Um, and it's in its beginning form, monasticism was a way of life adopted by anchorites, so people living alone in the deserts of Syria, Palestine, and Egypt around the end of the third century. And um, scholars kind of have two theories to explain this phenomenon, you know, the rise of monasticism. If we believe St. Jerome, who was a Latin historian at the time, he says that these people were Christian refugees who were fleeing persecution under the reign of Decius and Diocletian. Um, But other scholars actually think that once Constantine declared his edict in 313, which allowed Christians to practice freely, these were just people who were just not content with where the Christian community was at. They felt like things had gotten lenient and lax. And I think they just wanted to practice their religion on a deeper kind of level. So brilliant. Yeah. I love, yeah. Do you know what, Merrin, don't you feel that we've kind of like in Britain, we've kind of had this part of our history destroyed purposely. <laughs> like Henry VIII battered it down and got rid of it. So, I mean, like I going around Poland, near Krakow, was seeing some religious art and stuff like carved from wood from the 10th century and that that all got burnt, sold off, melted down as far as we're concerned. So this is really interesting for us. 
And I'll tell you what fascinates me straight off is the number of different um, faith perspectives and geographical influences you've mentioned already. So what is it that decides the actual precise location of a monastery? Is it it the people, the the ability to find land? Is it a need for faith in that area? Um, So there's a combination of things. So, you know, in the early kind of period, monasticism, again, was all about the retreat to the the desert, the wilderness, you know, so the solitaries got the idea of renunciation from the gospel, you know, the gospel of Mark talks about John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, and this is a very vivid image. And, you know, uh, Jesus tells a rich man, and I think the gospel of Matthew, he's like, you know, if you wish to have a spiritual life, he says, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. So it's kind of this idea of isolation, wilderness, etc. So at least the early ones um, started in places where that was possible. So again, Egypt, Palestine, Syria. Um, First, we see, uh, so the eremitical mode of life there, which eremos is the Greek word for desert. So again, you know, that image of the wilderness, you know, um, a kind of desolate place. And um, the most influential of these desert hermits was St. Antony. And uh, the life of Antony uh, tells us that Antony gave up his, you know, inheritance. His parents were landowners, his his property, etc., and he actually went into the desert and he placed himself under the guidance of this old holy man. And so we know that he wasn't the first people, that many people were actually going to these isolated places in the desert to practice this way of life. So after his spiritual training under this sort of guru for, I think, a few decades, he retreats even further to a ruin, you know, for 20 years. And once he's done living alone in the middle of nowhere, he kind of becomes a spiritual teacher for the other people in those desert colonies. Um, but then there was sort of a, a second kind of way of life. And it was still in the desert, but the second mode of life was the more popular one. It was the Cenobitic life and comes from the Greek word for koinos, which means common. And this is where we get the idea of a monastery. So according to our sources, St. Pacomius was the first one to create a koenobium, which is a monastery somewhere around the upper Nile, around 320. So again, still in the wilderness. Um, I think it's worth noting, though, that these monks weren't necessarily like miles and miles away from each other um these were kind of colonies in a sense so you couldn't see them you know you were out of earshot out of you know eyesight but um these were colonies and in the middle you'd have like a church or a bakery because at some point all the monks needed to celebrate mass right um and uh yeah so and another i guess aspect of living in the desert was this sort of spiritual battle against the elements and whatnot um so one major kind of uh, aspect of living in the desert was asceticism, you know? Um, and this is, for those of you who don't know, severe self-discipline and self-denial. So these monks would fast, they would deprive themselves of sleep, um, they would mortify their body in order to conquer themselves. Um, Antony himself, he only ate bread, salt, and, and water, so a very restrictive diet. Um, but in the desert, it's sort of this arena, again, for a spiritual battle. So uh, 
Antony, he battles against the devil who entices him with boredom, with laziness, which is a big no-no for these monks. Mm -hmm. Um, The devil sends him sort of specters of sexual desire. So women who are like, ooh, please fornicate with us, you know. (laughs) And at at one point, problematically too, the devil sends him a, and I'm just using the phrase that's in the source, a black boy, as which was representative of sexual desire, which is really problematic, but, you know. So, you know, this was a place where you were constantly harassed by demons. Now, I I would understand it as sort of psychological demons. You're in a desert. I'm sure you see visions, too, because you're not eating enough, you know, um, whatnot. Um, So, yeah, you have a lot of kind of paintings of these aesthetics, in particular of of Anthony. There's one that I love by um, Michelangelo, I think, and it shows him being clubbed by a bunch of demons. Yeah. Which honestly is how this year has felt so far, so I think we can all relate. Yeah. Um, there, is, yeah. Um, it, it's almost introspective, and I guess that's part of the purpose of them being a community and renouncing the outside influences that take them away from their affinity with their faith, their, 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 their saint relationship. But I have a very practical question. Um, you mentioned the bakeries, obviously, for, for mass, the bread and the wine, and there, presumably there would have been great content or alcohol content too. But living by bread and salt and water alone is one aspect. How else did they support themselves? Were, I mean, I've, I've, I've read stories about them drawing on, um, you know, villages or other communities from outside, bringing them food. Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely true. So they actually... Um made a lot of crafts so these early monks would weave baskets that was a huge kind of uh way to support themselves they would make linen um they made ropes and what would they would do so they didn't have to sell them directly they would have locals and nearby villages sell it for them right so this is one way they kind of supported themselves um but there are other kind of i guess instances where they had other people like do the work for them so for for example um we have one extreme form of asceticism uh it, it was saint simeon the stylite and this was a guy who lived on top of a pillar in syria for 47 years so obviously he didn't get down at any point and you know he was in weaving baskets at the top of there so uh people think that he would pull up his food using a bucketing rope or more likely that he had young boys climb the pillar and give him food so there was a sort of dependence on the local community in terms of uh, you know the basic necessities for life so this is the beginnings of it and then we get to the point in 1536 in our country where the scale of monasticism is so big that it's like literally a threat to the crown or perceived as a threat to the crown and taking revenue from them so how does it what's the journey to this because you research in the middle of that somewhere Mm. so what's the development and and how do monasteries develop into what we see in the medieval period yeah so eventually theologians in the East agree that the Cenobitic lifestyle is the way to go, right? Because, um, for example, St. Basil Cesare, he says the community or living in a community is more aligned with the social nature of man. And it also fulfills the commandments like love thy neighbor and, you know, charity towards others, which you can't do if, if you're just living alone in the desert. So this kind of way of life, eventually wins and the monastic movement is kind of spread to the west in the fourth century first to italy and southern gaul 
um, thanks to two factors. So the migration of refugee bishops and ascetics like Athanasius, who wrote the Saint, the life of St. Anthony. Um, and in particular, the literature of the movement. So for example, the life of St. Anthony and other accounts of the desert fathers were hugely popular in the West. This is what got every, you know, the movement going over there. Um, and you know, we see, the monastic movement flourishing in the West, but there was already suspicion at this early point, you know, bishops in the West were suspicious of the movement, mainly because many of these monks were outside the direct supervision of the church. Um, it also didn't help that monks were playing a huge role um, in the theological controversies in the East. And some of these controversies were turned violent. Um, and I think the way that it became comfortable for these uh, the bishops and, and, and whatnot is that people started writing their own uh, saints' lives, you know. So, for example, uh, Sopicius Severus, he writes The Life of St. Martin, which is Gaul's first sort of desert monk in a sense, you know. Um, and it not only fueled the fascination with monasticism, but it provided a model that made the church authorities comfortable with this new phenomenon. Um, and then slowly, monasticism was being brought under the institution of the church and the direct supervision of the church to the point where it was getting support from bishops. So, so I'm, I'm going to pick something up here because, I mean, these are two words that drive me insane. One is historiography, which gets confused with hagiography or hagiography, which is the actual writing of saints, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. the, the, the writing of saints, are we talking about people who've been canonized, recognized, there's an affinity with them? What is it that, that, that effectively makes a person a saint at this point? Well, um, you don't necessarily need to be canonized to be venerated as a saint. So none of the saints I study actually are canonized by the church. You know, you have so many local saints that, that aren't canonized, but, you know, they're still considered saints. Um, so you didn't necessarily have to be canonized, although St. Martin was canonized eventually. Um, you just kind of had to have this kind of notoriety, you know. So a lot of the hagiographies that are written are, you know, written about the founders of monasteries, you know. So, you know, for those who don't know, for those listening, hagiographies are basically the stories of the life and afterlife of saints. And they provided, you know, they were presented as Christian exemplars and, you know, they were comparable to Jesus and other holy persons. And it features a lot of literary topoi. So a lot of themes are, you know, found in every hagiography. And again, a lot of them are based on St. Martin or St. Anthony. Um, they taught moral lessons, they engendered spiritual reflection, but most of all, they just celebrated the state. That was the reason why you would write a hagiography and occasionally to kind of give authority to your monastery. If you're like trying to claim certain rights when it comes to the land or whatnot. So the monks you study, how did they live? I'm really interested as well, how they got from sort of um, retrospective in the desert to the really regimented lives they led, like with, uh, is it five sets of prayers a day and vespers and certain rules about meals and silences and that, that is, is very different to where we're going to go and live in the desert and confront our psychological demons, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so my monks actually, you know, were kind of practicing their religion before 
we get kind of formal religious orders and rules. So they did practice like the desert fathers, you know, they would pray in icy cold water, you know, remain, you know, uh, with their arms outstretched like Jesus and pray for several hours. It was a pretty hardcore life. But um, when we get, if we, if we take the Benedictine example, which reaches Europe, you know, in the sixth century, um, living as a monk was still pretty harsh. It was a highly regulated and disciplined life, as you said. Um, a monastery wasn't supposed to be a place of leisure. In fact, Benedict of Nursia, who wrote the Rule of St. Benedict, he referred to the community as a scola, which essentially is a military regiment. You know, this is a training ground for spiritual warfare. It was not supposed to be harsh or unbearable, but it was not supposed to be super easy. And so if we take that example, and the Benedictine rule I have to mention is not the strictest rule by far. Um, A monk would be allowed to sleep eight hours in the winter, six in the summer. You were allowed a siesta in the summer. Um, In the winter, you were allowed one meal in the summer, two. You were not allowed to eat meat unless you were sick. So an average meal included two or three vegetable dishes with bread and wine. Although Benedict, he says, if you don't have wine in your region, too bad for you. You're not going to drink wine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then obviously a monk's average day revolved around the liturgy of the hours or what we call the divine office. And this is just an example. So, you know, around 2 a.m. in the winter or 3 a.m. in the summer, a monk would begin worship with the singing of the matins which was previously called vigils. And then at 5 a.m. or dawn, you would chant the office of lauds. The next hour, around 6 a.m., you would pray the office of prime. And then at 9 a.m., you had terse. And then at noon, you had the office of sext. At 3 p.m., you had the office of nun. At 6, you had the evening prayer or vespers, as you said. And then at, finally at 7 p.m., around 7 p.m., you would have the compline, which was the longest service. So you probably wouldn't go to bed for like until 9 p.m. And each prayer hour consisted of prayers, some scripture, a hymn, a canticle. Again, it, it varied. Um, so a lot of time was spent just praying and chanting. So this and, is like when they say giving your life to God, they mean it. Yes, exactly. There is, you barely get any rest. And when they weren't praying, monks were expected to work or to study. So idleness was to be avoided at all costs. In fact, Benedict called idleness the enemy of the soul. So yeah, you could not relax at any point. This this, this sounds, um, I mean, it's an indoctrinated way of living. And it's, it's a complete contrast, I think, to the way we often perceive monks to be the portly fat, you know, fellow in, in the bread. Because clearly there wasn't that much food. Clearly they had to, um, they had to grow vegetables to, to live. I mean, they were still sustaining as, as far as I understand. Yes. So when they weren't praying, they were working. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody else in the monasteries working alongside them or was it, or was it a closed shop? Um, so early on, you know, monks were encouraged to do the hard labor themselves and in certain orders as well. They were still encouraged to do that, as you said, grow the vegetables, whatnot. Um, but as the church becomes a bit or the monasteries become a bit organized, you see monks, they're still performing jobs, but they're not necessarily hard labor. So you would 
uh, higher sort of lay brothers, people who weren't actually monks, but, you know, were associated with the monastery to perform, you know, this hard labor to grow the vegetables, to do the, the work that you didn't want to do. So um, when the monasteries become more organized, you know, some typical jobs were, you know, the prior, who was the second in command after the abbot, who was the, the leader, um, deans who were in charge of um, 10 monks. You'd have the cellarer who's in charge of pr- provisions. You'd have the monks who took care of novices, so the newbies. Um, you had those in charge of the infirmary, scribes, obviously, to copy and um, illuminate manuscripts. Uh, you had the sacrist who was in charge of taking care of the books, the lector, the, the, monk, the monk in charge of reading beekeepers, winemakers, etc. But um, again, I think as time went on, the hard labor went to lay people who were hired. Um, when does the community aspect come in? Because I'm really interested. In, so, so when the dissolution happened, it sucked like infrastructure out of England because monks had been providing medical care for people um, and hospice care. When does that develop so that they're sort of engaging does that an offshoot from the people bringing them food at the beginning in the desert is that grows how do they develop that role within a community I think it was always there um in my research um even though my monks are always striving to be isolated they do have um they do have responsibilities to a community whether it's to get rid of a dragon that's terrorizing the local village or, you know, providing some sort of pastoral care, although that was reserved for priests. You do see it from the beginning. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't say it came at a certain point. Maybe, it, you know, as monasteries became more urban, you know, or were in more urban places, you definitely see that, especially with um, uh, friars and beguins, which I'll talk about later. Um who are living in towns but i'd say the community aspect was always there and were there any, i mean touchy subject maybe but were there any women allowed in the monasteries no um <laughs> but it, it's not that it didn't happen you know so women were they had their own sort of monasteries you had nunneries you know um so women were definitely involved you know, in, since the very beginning, um, you have like desert mothers, I guess you could call them. Um, you would know, they not- hire, like a cook or something that was a female or would they just not? It was supposed to be male servants, although you kind of see the reverse in um, nunneries where sometimes you would have male servants. And that that was a bit problematic, too. We see some writers commenting on that. Um, but you do have so, you know, in the early period you know, you do have wealthy widows and whatnot who were inspired by the Desert Fathers and who adopted ascetic lifestyles, and they would create these nunneries because they had the money to do so. Um, and at some point, um, I think in places like Merovingian uh, and Carolingian Francia and early England, you had double monasteries, which was a community that housed nuns and monks separately, but they were still kind of, you know, within the same community. And interest, interestingly, um, in this early period, you had abbesses who were in charge of both the men and the women in this community. Um, and these abbesses were typically, well, in nunneries at this point, like pretty much everyone was of royal or noble stock, especially, you know, the women. So you had abbesses who were, you know, probably princess, princesses and whatnot, and they were in charge of the monks as well in these double monasteries. But um, 
as you can imagine, uh, there was a lot of clerical disapproval because, you know, women were acting as superior to men. Um, so from the 11th century, not like that, would they? Yeah. Oh, you can't have a woman in charge, you know, threatens men, um, toxic masculinity. Um, so from the 11th century onwards, um, double monasteries were under the supervision of men. Um, Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It makes sense. Um, I mean, in some respects, that the whole maternal, the mother perspective, just it's intrinsically sensible to have a woman sorting stuff out, we all know sometimes. But... Random question, I suppose, in some way. Is there an element of interaction between the two sexes? I mean, do we see any uh, scandal? I don't know if scandal is the right word, but is there any documented interaction? Yes. Well, th- we definitely have scandal. Um, so, especially because these are sexually frustrated men, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't have any from my research, but th- we know because there was a lot of visitation. So you would have a cleric. Um, you know, maybe a bishop or whatnot who would make visitations to these communities to make sure that everything was, you know, going according to plan. There was no, like, you know, again, scandal. But we do know of um, clandestine affairs between um, nuns and brothers. So I know of one in the 12th century, um, a nun and brother from a Gilbertine monastery in England or monastic community were having a sexual affair and they got found out because she became pregnant. And um, apparently the nuns, and I I quote, wreaked revenge on the lay brother's body, on the the monk's body. So I imagine just nuns like beating the crap out of this poor monk. Congratulating him. Yeah, exactly. Um, And either that or there's some gardening shears and it's a whole other level of revenge. (laughs) Well, it's funny you speak of uh, gardening because we have, well, we have some um, medieval literature that does talk about, you know, monks and nuns being a bit naughty. Um, So we have the Decameron, which was written by Boccaccio in the 14th century. And it includes a story with horny nuns. (laughs) So, um, there's Macedo, one of the main characters. He's a handsome young man and he really needs a job. So he pretends to be deaf and mute in order to get a job as a gardener in the nunnery. Mm. And so the nuns think uh, he's deaf and mute. So they decide to use him to explore their sexuality, I'll say. This was, this was written by a man, right? This is a yes. porn, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the equivalent of the, the plumber coming round to... It's a, oh, that's a great, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. But, but all the nuns, 
you know, take their turns with him, you know? And Masato knows that like, he's going along with the whole thing because he's like, oh, I love this female attention. But uh, at one point, the abbess um, takes him into her room and spends, like, many days with him, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the other nuns start complaining that she's monopolizing him. They're not getting a fair share. Yeah, so, and eventually the nuns find out that he's actually, he actually isn't deaf and mute, and they're really mad at him, but they decide to keep him as a steward in the nunnery, so he won't go spilling the beans about their reputation and whatnot. Um, and we have the reverse, too. Obviously, you know, monks were written about a lot, like naughty monks, um, in the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which, again, very late 14th century, um, there's several stories that kind of criticize the church and members of the church. Um, and in one story called the Shipman's Tale, so it tells the story of a merchant's wife who's in debt because she loves spending money on, on nice things, on revelry, as he says. And so he asks um, her husband's friend, who happens to be a monk, which is a bit weird, um, to give her money to pay her debts. And he actually, the monk takes the money from his merchant friend without any of them knowing. And he gives it to the wife on condition that she sleep with him. And Geoffrey Chaucer, the, the lines written are that for this hundred francs, he should all, she should all night have higher in his arms bolt upright. So basically that she should be in bed, you know, all night. Um, so yeah, these were very common stories. People poked fun at, you know, <laughs> monks and nuns. And I mean, they're human, human beings. And I think people knew that. So it's interesting that this is being committed to writings. Mm-hmm. If we go back back a moment to the hagiographies that you spoke about, the the, the saints and the, the affinity of saints, one one to each monastery, did they swap saints? Did they choose saints? Do we see saints in different countries used for different purposes? How, how does it work? Yeah, so um, a saint would... The saint of, of a community would usually be the founder, you know, like the person who founded the actual monastery, however, many hundreds of years ago. Um, but you also had, you know, the cult of saints, the spread of, of saints cults, you know. Um, so you had, I mean, saints could be, you know, the patron uh, saint of a country, of a particular place, of an order, etc. Um I think when you said swapping saints, it kind of reminds me of um, when monasteries would steal relics from other monasteries, you know what I mean? So I guess that's a way that monasteries would would swap saints and whatnot. So you have a lot of relic theft and uh, monasteries kind of fighting with each other because of that. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of ways that uh, I suppose you could acquire you know, a saint for your place. And, um, but I think the main way was the spread of the cult of saints, which was done. Yeah. It, so you know. hear a story about a saint somewhere else and you like the sound of her. So you pick her up. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, texts and, and pilgrimages play a huge role in this, you know, um, we have a lot of cult images, pilgrim badges that served as like mementos for a pilgrimage to a saint shrine, um, and obviously, you know, lay people played a role in that, but also, you know, monks played a role in that as well. As they traveled, they would, mm-hmm. um, they would bring in, they would import new, you know, cults of saints into new places. My monks in particular did that. Um, you know, all the, at one point, um, all of the monasteries in Brittany are destroyed because of the Vikings. So they had to kind of exile themselves. And you see the spread of, you know, the cult of Breton saints go further east into the continent and to England. So that's one way that it was done. 
that's that's really interesting. When I think about Italy, where every day of the year has a, a nominated saint, and and you are born on I'm, I'm Giovanni Battista. I was born on Giovanni San, San Giovanni Battista. So the saint they they sort of kind of take with them if they need to. Does the influence of that saint's writings appear in the communities around the monastery in any way? Do we know? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, saints were for everybody, right? And there's a joke that says that, you know, um, I love this joke. It says that Catholics need saints because God's too busy dealing with Protestants directly. <laughs> but it's true. Because, you know, uh, saints are, you know, saints are holy. They're close to God, but they're supposed to act as intercessors between people and God. So lay people, monks, anybody. Um, and although they were technically in heaven, saints were present in the world. So they were present in the, their locus, so their location, literally where the, you know, their grave was, a relic was, etc. And it was in that place that they would work miracles for the living, um, petitioning for the spiritual and physical needs of their devotees, which again was anyone in the community. So they could serve as protectors of monastic communities, the ones they founded or whatnot, and just protectors of lay people. Um, and in theory, they had to petition God to intercede on the devotee's behalf. But in practice, at least in the texts that I research, the saints are incredibly powerful and autonomous, you know, um, for example, a kind of typical post-mortem. And I mean, like after their death, they're still present. As I said, a post-mortem miracle in a hagiography is kind of a thwarted theft attempt. So a thief or a band of thieves will usually try to rob a church or a monastery. And the saint who is present in that community will stop the thieves by striking them dead, paralyzing them or punishing them in some sort of way. Um, like I said, saints could also be the patron of a nation, profession, a place, an act, a cause, etc. So, um, one of my favorite examples is um, that women would pray and use images of St. Margaret of Antioch uh, to ensure safe childbirth because Margaret of Antioch was swallowed by a dragon and emerged safely using a cross, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, both lay and religious people showed devotion to saints. They would both go on pilgrimages to their shrine, which usually contained, again, the body or relic of a saint. Um, they would include them in the litany, which was basically just a chant of a list of saints. Um, they would sing hymns to them, make images of them. Again, pilgrim badges. Um, they would write down their vita, you know, their hagiography. Um, and as you mentioned, the biggest way to celebrate a saint was to celebrate their feast day, you know, which every, there, there's not one day that's not a saint's day. <laughs> um, and I'm talking about them, you know, the ones that weren't canonized as well. Um, and I guess the other kind of aspect of, of saints was that saints were kind of models to emulate. So people were encouraged to look at the virtues of these saints and copy them, you know. So Mary was an obvious one for women. Um, so, yeah. They become a framework, an easy narrative against which to build a framework for life. You don't need to understand 74 different statutes if you've got someone you can emulate and the way they lived and, and what their what their values were. Exactly. And saints are super relatable because they were human, you know, or they they are human if you know they're so holy. Um and they went they go through trials and tribulations that we all go through. So I guess they were more relatable in a way. Um so yeah they were 
kind of spiritual helpers, but also like heroes and role models. I'd really like to know which one you connect with the most. Oof. Um, uh, can I, can I do two? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So I guess my first, the f- first thing I resonate with the most is Hildegard von Bingen, which I feel like everyone maybe has heard of. She was an abbess. She was, she was everything. She was a writer, a mystic, a composer, a visionary, philosopher, a sort of scientist, a cookie baker, which I just... Spirit animal! Spirit animal! (laughs) Yeah, Um, and she was, you know, she lived in 12th century Germany, and she had visions from a very young age, and she received the sort of papal approval to write them down um, and as revelations from the Holy Spirit. Um, and she was just such an incredible woman. She was held in such high regard that she would correspond with popes, abbots, abbesses, princes, emperors, you know, and she was a very strong character. Um, she composed beautiful music, which you can listen to today. I highly recommend if you ever need to feel like Zen and just chill, just listen to Hildegard von Bingen's music. Um, and then, Another aspect I love about her is that she created, uh, she made up a language which was called lingua ignota, so unknown language. And she would use this alphabet that she invented to sort of, she would use a secret language, you know, so she was a woman of many gifts. Um, and I'd say my second one, and I am biased, um, is uh, Gildas, Gildas the Wise, which we know in Britain, um, mainly because he just loves to talk crap about, uh, you know, contemporary politicians and kings. So if you love talking crap about British politicians, like he's the, he's the guy for you. Um, and apparently if you, you know, if you believe Breton tradition, um, he has a grandson named EUL, which is my surname. So I like to believe ah. that we're somehow related. And yeah, so those are my two favorite saints. But uh, yeah, there's so many. There's so many. You mentioned relics as well. Uh, we did a whole show on that with Emma Wells um, because we had a great time talking about nonsense relics um, from medieval monasteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you come across any of those in your research? Um, you know, I think the early Breton monks weren't really into bodies and whatnot, which is great because I have to say, like, I, I'm not really a huge fan of creepy relics, like, you know, incorrupt <laughs> bodies or... I came across one, not in my research, but just, you know, um, it was uh, Christ's foreskin, which was a huge, uh, huge deal. I mean, Catherine of Siena used it as a, a wedding ring, but that's that's a whole different story. So I'm not really into the creepy ones. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it, in my research, it's mainly just bones and whatnot, just normal ones. I haven't come across one that's very strange. Well, I've come across in my research like handbells, um, garments, things like that. They're really, uh, you know, Bretons being like Celts that are really into their handbells and whatnot. And um, But my favorite one is actually not from my research. And I, I feel like it's a lot of people's favorite relic. It's um, the crown of thorns held in uh, La Saint-Chapelle in um, Paris, mm-hmm. just because it is such a beautiful building. Um, it was built by St. Louis. Um, and I mean, the stained glass, the ceiling is just absolutely gorgeous. And it's such a sacred space. Um, and it's Jesus's relic, you know, that's the oldest you can get. Um, so I'd say that would be my favorite one. Just finally, before I know Meryn's going to 
want to know where you find all this stuff out because she's just nosy like that. But we know what happened to monasticism in Britain, England and Wales, at least. Well, I think Wales. Anyway, England, definitely. Uh, Henry VIII decided no more one day and then it was gone. But what happened to it everywhere else? I mean, it's, there, are, there must still be monasteries, but obviously it's declined hugely since the medieval period. Yeah, so uh, monasteries are st- definitely still a thing. So one of the monasteries that I actually study my research still exists to this day. Um, the only change is that, you know, there was monastic reform. And um, in my research, at least, some of these monasteries adopted a newer um, rule, you know, like the Benedictines or, or whatnot. So it changed the, you know, the sort of way that they practice things. But um, yeah, monasteries still very much exist to this day. Um, I know in France, definitely. <laughs> I've visited them. Um, I'm trying to think of, of where, I mean, they're pretty much everywhere. Like the, yeah. And yeah. like I said, they're not, they're not exclusive to Christianity. You know, you have Buddhist monks, you have like, monks are still everywhere. Obviously it's not, I, as you said, I would imagine it's not as popular today as it was in the middle ages. Um, I guess it was just a, I could see the appeal in becoming a monk, you know, or you were just dumped in a monastery if you're like a child old late, you know, so the one of the guys we met in Thailand, he actually, so he had done his training as a monk and then decided that it wasn't for him. But he recently went back and did a three month stint because he felt you know, he, he's married and he has a child and that. But he thought he needed some time to reflect and some time for some retrospection, introspection. Um, so he went back in for three months um, and stuff. So it definitely does still exist. Oh, yeah. And I, I've been to, you know, medieval conferences where some of the speakers are, are monks, you know. Um, so, uh, and I definitely see them when I go, not on pilgrimage, but when I go to visit relics and stuff for, you know, educational purposes. Um, so yeah, they very much still exist. I might, I might, I can see the appeal to this day of being a monk, to be honest. Definitely after the, well, we've all lived like kind of a monastic life the last year, haven't we? Exactly. The more exposure I have to people in general, the more I can understand the idea of going and living in a monastery. Yeah, so, I'd want to live in a desert, to be honest, just be yeah. away from everyone. Wadi Rum would be nice in Jordan. That would be <laughs> oh, cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We could live there, live, live there in isolation yeah. in, in certain amount of peace. Yeah. And- My friend Fahid can just bring us, like, Diet Coke and stuff. That's perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. Dates, maybe. At least you, you've mentioned research several times. Where do you research saints? Where do you research monasticism? Um. So archives usually um so i the, the the texts i work with are hagiographies as we mentioned earlier um martyrologies which are it's just a list of martyrs or saints organized by their feast day uh calendars and churches uh just manuscripts um and those are pretty much all found in archives, um, which are either, you know, in national archives, like the Bibliothèque Nationale, or in church archives. So ones in Brittany are still housed in the monasteries or in the churches that they were originally in. What's your favourite document you've, like, had in your hands? Well, I haven't been able to, to go to the archives, <laughs> unfortunately, because of COVID. I'm hoping that I will be able to at some point. Um but I'd have to say there's one cartulary, um, there's a cartulary of Landevenec, which is arguably the most prominent kind of monastery in Brittany. 
um, and includes these saints' lives, this is the life of Gwenole, the life of um, Idunet, who goes to Ireland and just lives in a forest, which I totally relate to. Um, and then the cartulary, which is great to see how, you know, if you're interested in and in how the monks kind of um, interacted with the lay community, you know, in terms of property and whatnot. And I'd have to say, just from the information that's there, um, the illuminations, etc. I'd have to say that's my favorite document. Um, and also to think that, you know, this was a monastery that was burned to the ground by Vikings, but this document still survives because they, they took care of it and they brought it with them. I have to say that's, that's probably my favorite one. But, and, and putting that into your hands and being able to, able to literally hold it takes you right back and puts you in contact doesn't it with with everything you're working on this has been absolutely fantastic because i don't think i'd understood the impact i mean yes we're we're quite used to talking about the british i'm using the word british but the english aspect of monasticism Mm -hmm. but it certainly opened my eyes as to the impact and influence of monasticism elsewhere and i think it's um something i might be trawling amazon for later yeah she's already buying books (laughs) (laughs) great great i'm glad i can help in some way thank you so much it's been fantastic thank you for having me don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh if you join There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.